dark. There are exactly 14 minutes left. I'm afraid the old place is going up. Have you heard about Amsterdam? Yeah. Some mistake. Ooh, 28 square miles of white ash. Civilization's about to blow itself apart. to the bloody pit this is episode 127 i think and returning guest randy fox how are you doing buddy oh i'm doing good what uh a crazy couple of years i can't believe it's been so long since we did soylent green which was the last one of the 70s science fiction podcast but 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 finally we're back well you've been a you've been a busy guy yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, a, a book, you you know, working at a radio station, running a magazine. I mean, what the hell else can you do with your day? Yeah, and then, and then just the general insanity of the last year or two, so. I, I'm but, sorry, what, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Oh, just the general insanity of this last year. I, I, I don't, I don't have any idea what's Oh, uh, yeah, 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 no. yeah, yeah, that's right. You've been, a, you've been bowling with the dwarves, you know, <laughs> for the last <laughs> And growing that long beard for the last year, so. yeah. If you're if you're talking about, I have no I have no clue what you're talking about. It's yeah, no idea yeah. at all. It's all seemed really, really normal to me. Yeah. <laughs> Down in Sleepy Hollow, everything was okay. So, yeah. uh, well, uh, we have uh, we have definitely decided to jump back into the '70s science fiction films with both feet with uh, a film that I think is both underknown, underappreciated, and. Uh, it virtually invisible to a lot of people who might actually end up enjoying it if they even knew it existed. The final program from 1973. Tell me something. Uh, when did you first encounter this movie? Well, I, I guess I read about it several years ago, and it, and it sounded curious. And then, um, I don't know, about oh, 11, 12 years ago, I got on the kick where I was started watching all these 70s science fiction movies. I, I wanted to see, like, every movie that came out when I was a kid that either I, I saw, didn't see, or never had heard of, you know, from the... Uh-huh. 
And we've talked before about how, how special that period is uh, from 1967 to 1977, uh, which is like it, the 2001 Planet of the Apes starts that period. And then, of course, Star Wars just ended it immediately. Yeah. Um, uh, for for good, good or bad, you know, you can argue it either way. It, but, it yeah. Depends. yeah, it depends on yeah. your point of view. And it de- yeah. honestly, it depends on the time of day sometimes for me. So. Yeah, yeah. But there was, you know, that, that was that time where you, we had more cerebral science fiction movies. You had uh, a lot of dystopian visions of the future. And, and, and really, you know, I, I think for our generation that grew up during that time period, it, it really affected us in a different way. It, it, it planted some ideas in our heads that, that are still here all these years later that people who really came later don't totally understand, you know. So, Well, I think it's, it planted one specific idea that I think reoccurred really heavily in the 80s, which is the whole idea of the post-apocalyptic tale. And, right. uh, of course, the, the post-apocalyptic tale or the end-of-the-world story, which will kind of play into what this movie is about in a way. It, it, it's something that uh, I don't think was... I mean, there were the occasional end-of-the-world stories in cinema before the, uh, yeah. the, the 70s and 80s. But after, the, after, that, after that certain point, and I would, I would think that the inflection point, the kind of hinge point where it became something that could be done and be seen as both viable and profitable possibly was probably planet of the apes yeah well you know i think that's a that's a good point because there certainly was plenty of end of the world movies in the in the 50s and the 60s before planet of the apes but it was almost kind of like well this is what's going to happen if we don't stop testing nuclear weapons or what nuclear war will lead to it it was almost the idea that it was the end and planet of the apes kind of introduced the concept in a way, I mean, people had done this before, but what comes after that? What new weird world is going to exist after that? And so in some ways, the focus kind of changed, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, you've got 2001, which which elevated um, science fiction in people's minds out of just, you know, Captain Future or Lost in Space. And, and, well, and combined probably a little influence from Star Trek, too, you know, at that same time. So, Well, I think that the... Uh it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting to think about. Well, let, let's let's point out that in the United States, this film was released under the title "The Last Days of Man on Earth," which right. uh, kind of gives you an idea of uh, selling se- selling the film down the river in a very strange way. It's it's not it's not only not the best title for this film. Uh, I don't know how good. A co- how good I don't know how good a title the final program actually is for this story, uh, but it is the, the 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 title of the novel that it's adapted from uh, the the, right, no- the novel right. by Michael Moorcock, and uh, I'll just t- I'll just say that my and there's a lot to say about oh that. I've got I've got so much to say uh, well here's the yeah, thing I yeah. I did not see this movie until uh, well after I mean at least a decade more or more. After I had read the novel, as a matter of fact, after I had read the uh, the uh, the initial four Jerry Cornelius stories, I, right. when they came out in, in that finally unexpurgated, uh, you know, giant sized paperback book in the late seventies, which I just which I just reread in the last few weeks, all four of them. So out of that same edition, so yeah. Well, I, yeah, I've just I've reread the first two because those are the two that I actually have physical copies of still. But yeah. the uh, the the joys of well, I, well, when I finally came to the movie, was uh, believe it or not, off of a laser disc. That's that. So that'll tell you that was a long time ago as well. 
the thing was I wanted to see because I I heard I'd heard for years that there was a, a film adaptation of the first Jerry Cornelius story and I I was kind of surprised uh, because I couldn't imagine how they would adapt it and then when you see the film you realize that well well essentially they kind of took the in my opinion the correct tack which is you've got to come at this thing dead on because the story itself is already so sideways that if you tried any kind of Rokoku you know filigree if you tried any kind of strange ad- adaptation version of it if you came at it with your own strange attitude that didn't really fit the same attitude of the novel you were gonna miss it entirely and I would say uh, I, I disagree with Michael Moorcock that the film did miss it entirely. I think that that's uh, that's the that's the typical reaction of an author who sees his work adapted to the big screen and 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 wants to piss all over it because God damn it, it's not my novel. But I would defend this version, this film version of the novel, as being uh, as good as you could have gotten with the budget uh, in in right. 1973. Yeah, and I agree. I I think there are a couple of places where they they made some missteps, and I would prefer to have been a little bit more like the novel, and we'll get into those. But overall, I think it's actually a pretty good adaptation of the novel, and and um and and has some interesting points of its own that are unique to it. I think one of the things that stands out is this, and I have to give the the director um, credit for this. Who uh, yeah, Robert. Robert Faust, um, which I'm probably mispronounced that, but <laughs> anyway, uh, he understood right from the beginning that this was not camp. You know, it, it, they actually shot this in 1971, so it was a little bit past the post-camp period. But camp was still on everybody's minds. Yeah, very in a much big so. Way. Yeah, and and he understood that this is not this this the novel and consequently the movie are not camp what they are is their absurdist humor yes that's what michael that's what moorcock was going after he wasn't trying to be campy at all which is is a totally different thing from absurdist and some people might not understand the difference but when you really look at it they they really are i mean absurdist is actually camp is where you're basically making fun of the form and everything and, and it can be a lot of fun, but, you know, it's, it's this one thing. Absurdist is where you're just like, well, no, this is serious. This is like a form of satire uh, that you're saying, you know, this is, you know, everything is just crazy. And, and, you, you, and I, in some ways, I think the absurdist of the movie holds up better. Because, I mean, you look yes. around at the world we live in now, and especially the world we've gone through the last four years, it's like... Well, you know, is this any crazier than what we've just lived through? You know, <laughs> or the world we're living in right now? You know, <laughs> no, it's not. They're, when they're, you get they're... down to it, it's not. Yeah, you know, it, and that was one thing. And rereading the four Jerry Cornelius novels in the last month, I was just like, oh my god, these things these things could have almost been written yesterday. You know, I know that's the feeling yeah, I got, especially. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the first one is, uh, having only reread the first two, I can say that uh, the, the first one, the final program, is very much a more linear tale. Uh, and, yeah, and, we'll, yeah. and we'll get to it's, and we'll get to why and what he was aiming for. Then the second one, a cure for cancer, which is which is really just a, a bizarre series of vignettes that he uh, he had written and published in different magazines and anthologies over over the, a couple of years, and then strung together and uh, turned it into a a, a longer form s- story. But it's right. it's it's uh, very much keeping the same kind of sardonic, uh, satirical 
uh, I, I would say, uh, kind of a knowing week without ever descending into camp, as you say. It never becomes anything where the material is being laughed at. It's the world, the world that it's trying to be a funhouse mirror to is being laughed at. And part of the, the humor of the story is that everyone is in on a certain level of the joke. In other words, all the characters are very well aware of things that they don't need to impart to the other characters, and there's no and there's no reason for us to necessarily know them unless we're paying really close attention and are trying to keep up as much as we can, because you can either watch this movie with uh, a you know with a, a great attention to detail, really concentrating, or and, and 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 that will give you a lot of it. That will get you a lot out of it and make you really enjoy it. But yeah, well. I think, especially with Morcock, what he was what he was doing here is that he was like combining two things, which are, I think are just supremely cool. He was taking kind of the um, the shared universe concept from science fiction, yeah. you know, where you have all these different stories, all these different characters, but they all take place in the same universe, or or actually, in this case, a multiverse, because especially in the later Jerry Cornelius novels, you're you're constantly kind of shifting between different parallel worlds. But it's the same characters on each of these timelines or worlds. But at the same time, he was combining that with that whole William S. Burroughs uh, cut-up novel, stream of consciousness, you know, surreal, absurdist sense of humor. Yeah. So, so he comes up with this, and, and that's what I love. I, I really love writers who are able to kind of come at it from a genre side, but also come at it from a high literary side. And come up with something that's really a, a unique marriage of both of those worlds of genre fiction and literary fiction, and that's what I feel like Moorcock just absolutely nailed in the Jerry Cornelius stories. Um, yeah. So. Well, I'm I've been a fan uh, like like most people who come to Michael Moorcock's work. I of course came to him through the Elric novels initially, right. yeah. and we should point out that uh, he has made no made no secret of the fact that the final program, the first Jerry Cornelius yeah. novel was a rewrite, or at least the, the first chunk of it is a rewrite of the initial Elric story. And, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, exactly. it's essentially the same story transplanted to, you know, the late 19... Uh, kind of this weird alternate late 1960s, early 1970s world that posits all of these characters being in the same relationship to each other, but just use, <laughs> using them to very much different ends... And uh, he did it as a he did it as kind of a template to show to other authors. Well, this is the kind this is the vibe. This is the attitude. This is the the, the tone I'm going for. And uh, this this spurred a lot of writers to uh, you could run down a long list of them too to take this idea to take this not just this character but this mode of writing uh, as kind of a new kind of science fiction and kind of run forever with it. Right, and and at the time, Moorcock was editor of New Worlds magazine, which was yeah. kind of the leading, you know, it was it was where what they call the British New Wave science fiction movement began was in that magazine. It was it was again like I was saying, it was bringing more literary, bizarre, surrealist writing into fiction. And of course, Moorcock, in creating Jerry Cornelius, he encouraged other writers to, I want you to write stories about this. Write me a story about this character, but do whatever you want to with it. You don't, you know, you it, you don't have. 
you don't have to worry about what's canon, which is something that just drives me fucking nuts. If I can, <laughs> <laughs> is, is is that science fiction fans get so obsessed with, with canon? It's like you know, I want a good story. I don't care if it contradicts every single fucking thing that's been ever written in the past about this guy. I'm okay with that. And if you need to justify it in your head, well, well this is a parallel world, Earth 42 or whatever. whatever. That's that's fine. But as long tell me a good story. I would much rather read a good story that contradicts everything, you know, practically everything that's been established about the character in the past than a story that is absolutely 100% faithful to canon and yet bore and is boring as shit. So Anyway, there's my soapbox. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm I'm with you on the soapbox right next to it. But one of the things that that I would I would stand there to to yell at the passing crowd who think that we're insane is that Michael Moorcock is he's he was such a brilliant writer. He, he still is. I mean, he's he's such a brilliant writer throughout his entire decades long career that he's uh, he's a writer who is. So good that the types of works that he has written have been uh, have been well. Let, let's put it this way: he's he's a he's a. It's possible for a science fiction or a sword and sorcery fantasy uh, sword and sorcery fantasy person to really be a huge fan of his stuff, and it's also possible for the more literary world to be a huge fan of his works as well. And it's just it just depends on which section of his career that they would be talking about. I mean, let's be honest. He's one of the few writers I can think of whose work was it, it could can, could honestly be compared to not only like Edgar Rice Burroughs but also to William Burroughs. Yeah, exactly. I, precisely. And he's he, he he kind of he's he's brilliant in that he has a tendency to use satire like a freaking like he's wielding a knife, man. Is <laughs> the the verbal experiments that he use the, the you you mentioned earlier the kind of cut up nature sometimes that so many different people have used to different effect. It, it, he he gets into this this thing where he creates kind of a, a surreal sense of coexisting multiple worlds and there's all these uh, these different ways of representing time and space and uh, th- then just putting these characters through their paces, whether, you know, some of them, uh, whatever, whatever your point of view character might be, may or may not understand what's going on. But then at the same time, when you're reading this stuff, uh, and, and you can just concentrate on the Jerry Cornelius books, there, there's, there are pieces of the stuff that influenced him throughout it, and he doesn't try to hide it. It's very easy to see some of it. Just in this story, the final program, there's, uh, I mean, there's, there's a little bit of Poe. We get because we got like the incest thing with hints of necrophilia, which just feels like a little Edgar Allan Poe mixed in with some of this, along with a little of the House of Usher. Considering the way in the book, the uh, the the family home, the, the 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 chateau on the coast of Normandy, coast of Normandy is described, almost seems like it's sentient in the book. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And, and I love there's this quote in the novel. Uh, the, the quote is, uh, as he looked up at it, Jerry thought how strongly the house resembled his father's tricky skull. <laughs> and and, it, and it's, it's just this beautiful quote in the novel that, give, that gives you a sense of both what the, what the place means to him and why he would despise it. It's this place that, is, uh, that holds so much horror from his past and, and is also he, he describes it as being this this beautiful edifice, even though he refers to it as a fake Le Corbusier chateau. It's this place built by his father that he spent most of his upbringing in, and he's re- and it is the whole first chunk of the novel, the first chunk of the movie too, is him returning to it. To uh, and that, I love that casual cast off way he describes it to the uh, to his other uh, to his other. Uh, 
co-conspirators as well. Let's just call it revenge. Okay, how about that? Yeah, yeah. I guess we need to dive in the movie because we could sit here and talk oh, yeah. about more Morcock. <laughs> well, yeah, I could definitely. Uh, we could spend the next hour talking about Michael Morcock, and I would be perfectly happy to do that. But let's do, let's discuss this from this particular point of view, which is the film itself, which is the final program. Now, it was shot in 1971. Uh, it didn't come out until '73. Uh, depending on where you were, it may even come out later than that. I, it, it, it was a, the release date for the U.S. was seventy four. And, and wow, I, really? Okay. And, and I just want to point this in: I've never seen the U.S. print, but the U.S. print is like a, what um, a eighteen minutes shorter, or than, something like that. Yeah, which, which leads me to believe that cutting eighteen minutes out of that movie, it's like it's it's a little. It could be a little challenging for someone to follow as is, but with eighteen <laughs> minutes gone, it it had to be just a mess. So I've never seen the U.S. print, but I I I, I, I although I'm curious, I don't think I want to waste my time on it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I would either. It yeah. just it would seem like a. Uh kind of a futile exercise and, and, and don't get me wrong sometimes I am that film fanatic who loves to uh, compare and contrast different edits but it's just it, it, there's already I already wish this film as it stands at its full length were longer in the first place so the, I don't the way I feel too so yeah yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't want to see an even shorter version of it I want to see one that's roughly 10 to 15 minutes longer if that were possible but I don't you know, sadly sadly not yeah uh, yeah well, let's uh, let's let's examine this, and what we'll do is, as we go along, uh, if you want to if you want to talk about uh, differences, because I, I uh, the, the differences between the novel and the film, there are many, uh, but I would I will say that if we stop for every one, we'll we'll be here until next right, year. Right, right, right. So, yeah. So, no uh, need to get. I'll just. There's a couple of major differences, and those are the ones I want to I want to highlight. I found it interesting listening to the commentary track, which appeared on the DVD that came out, I think, around 2001 and, now, and is now on the new Blu-ray. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Foist mentions that um, they someone had optioned the novel and they approached him about it. And he was actually, at that time, he mentions the book. He's reading the book called uh, uh, The Last Hurrah of the Golden Horde, which is actually, he doesn't say the author, but that's a Norman, Norman Spinrad, yeah. Spinrad short story collection, which I had not read in probably 30 years, but I love Spinrad. He's one of my favorite science fiction writers. Great writer, great writer. And um, so I, I went and dug that out and uh, reread that story, and it turns out that that was Spinrad's Jerry Cornelius story is what it is. Oh, I haven't read that, that in, that, I, I yeah. think I still have my original paperback around here somewhere, but I haven't read that in forever either. I ought to dig that out. Yeah, I, uh, because... Uh, like I said, I read it 30 years ago. As a matter of fact, I may have even read the Spinrad story before I read Moorcock's Jerry Cornelius novels. Um, but yeah, so again, that so I guess he he was kind of already aware of the character because of that, because he happened to be reading that that Spinrad short story collection at the time, and and that story was published in New Orleans uh, originally too. So that makes sense. So I, yeah. So I found that interesting, and um, and then. Foist kind of talks about how you know he 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 started off only wanting to be the director, but he he um, ended up writing the screenplay because everyone they assigned the screenplay to turned in either turned in garbage or couldn't complete couldn't figure out how to make it into a screenplay, <laughs> and then he ended up doing the production design too. And and just to mention a little bit about Foist's uh, background, of course he he really got his career start as a production designer for television. Yeah. And worked on the Avengers, and then moved over to directing. And that experience working on the Avengers made him almost like the perfect person to direct this film because he understood the idea of how 
you can make something exciting and have the black humor in it and yet not turn it into just camp. Yes. You know, yeah. Because the Avengers, one thing I love about the Avengers is it's able to walk that fine line where sometimes it would indulge in camp a little bit, but but it never really. I mean, it was like you always felt like that there was respect for the material at the same time they were having fun with it. Yeah, so, the Avengers yeah. The, the Avengers would wink at you about some of the elements in some of the stories, or at least the approach of some of the stories. But within the within the the structure of the story and the way everything was being done, they took it seriously. They, they, the characters right. had to be believable within the, the the tensions and the and the dangers presented, even if uh, the way in which the story is being told allows the audience a little more distance than average. So that that tone and that feel is very much a part of how this movie go the, how this this movie feels as well. This is pretty much. Um, <laughs> This is this is pretty much a, a holdover in style and uh, uh, tone from the Avengers series, and it, it's it's all the better for that. And I think it's neat that uh, you're right, uh, Robert F- uh, F- uh, Fust or First. Now I can't remember how to pronounce his name, even though I heard him pronounce it on that damn commentary track just last yeah, night. Yeah, same here, same here. Well, uh, yeah. well, even though he, uh, you know, his his career was, uh, you know tied pretty effectively to Brian Clemens and a couple of the other people who worked on that initial uh, Avengers series. I mean, he came back and directed some of the uh, the new Avengers in the late 70s, and uh, he directed another film written by Brian Clemens. And uh, so it's it's clear that he was one of those people who, uh, as part of that production, or part of those productions, honestly, had a feel for that kind of storytelling. So... Let's talk about how he approached this, which I think is kind of fascinating. And I, I do love the fact that uh, Moorcock was involved enough to actually be on set during some of the filming of the movie as well. Although he did not get his wish to have uh, Hawkwind do the music in the film, uh, you can briefly you can briefly see them in one scene. Yeah, and I, 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 I've heard that that's actually Hawkwind with Michael Moorcock. And I will say... I really took a close look at that scene because it's very brief. I mean, it's just yeah, brief. very brief. But there is a there's a big guy in a green cape with long hair and an enormous black beard uh, d- swirling the cape around on stage, and it's like, uh, could that be Morcock? Because he kind of has the same type of facial hair <laughs> as Morcock did at that time period. Well, so. I can tell you now, uh, <laughs> I was able to find online. Uh, I was able to find online photos from uh, those de- those days. Uh-huh. Uh, on that on that set, and uh, Moorcock has got uh, kind of a, a, a kind of a shaggy beard. Although it's he really he, he's he's kind of shaved. He's got like mutton chops and like a, a goatee very much. But there's there, there's these wonderful little production photos that were taken of him and John Finch right uh, during the filming of that uh, of that sequence that I think is just a blast. Uh, and uh, one of them where you know you have the you can see the pic the the stage in the background where Hawkwind is set up and. Uh, uh, Moorcock's wearing this kind of bizarre cowboy hat. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. The Well, I wanted to say something about the film, too, it, it, about the film's budget. Uh, this is not a low-budget film by any means, because obviously no. there was enough sets in it that they had to spend some money. However, it's not really a big-budget film either, like uh, like a James Bond film or something from that time period. Yeah. And, there are, and there are times... 
having read the novel, there are times where I wish they had the bigger budget because there are things in the novel that would I would have loved to have seen on screen and they just didn't have the money to do it. However, I thought I think that Foyce did a marvelous job at figuring out at getting the most he could for the money he had. Yes. And and especially building up this idea of this apocalyptic world with I'm really having to show you a lot of ruins or anything, so we'll we'll get into that as we go along. But um, I, I that was something that impressed me was like, well, I wish they'd had more money, but at the same time, boy, did he use the money he had really well and <laughs> smartly too. Well, uh, so. one thing just before we launch into this plot synopsis, uh, I'm going to use a plot synopsis that has a couple of things that I'm going to object to, and one of them I want to object to really quickly is this uh, this thing that. Is it turns up in almost every plot synopsis of this film that I've ever run across, and it's really irritating me. It's really irritating me to to me because it's so obviously fucking wrong. Which is they'll <laughs> they'll des, they'll describe Jerry Cornelius as uh, a dashing secret agent, and it's like no assholes, no. He's not some yeah. damn secret agent. He's not a yeah. spy. Yeah. Where you're getting that idea from, I don't know. Now, don't get me wrong. Well, I know that John is... Finch. I know that John Finch, at one time, was considered strongly, very much considered for the role of Bond. Right before, uh, and he he turned it down. Uh, you know, right before Roger Moore took the role. But he's not a spy in this film. Don't get me wrong. And you, oh, that, when you watch yeah. him in this movie, it's very easy to see how amazing John Finch could have been playing a 1970s version of James Bond. It would have been awesome. It would have been great. Well, and there are definitely elements of the spy-fi genre, you know, yeah. all over the place in this. And and and, and even in the... I know Moorcock always has always objected um, vehemently to uh, the idea of Jerry Cornelius being described as a secret agent because he's not but at the same time especially in the first two novels Final Program and Cure for Cancer he's using a lot of the cliches from that genre yeah. by the time he gets to uh, the, the third novel The English Assassin uh, which would make you think it was more spy-fi he's pretty much abandoned that genre completely and moved off into other areas uh, but but yeah they're, so they're, he, he, they're, there's guilt by association but no he's not a spy and he's not a secret agent <laughs> by any means. Well, now I will say this: he is a man of many talents, and that's one of the things that I yeah. love most about this. Because, uh, and I know we keep putting this off and putting this off, but I have to get this in. One of the most amusing things to me is thinking about all the influences that the Jerry Cornelius novels and possibly this movie had on things that came after it. And the most obvious one to me, the one that just immediately popped to mind when I started rewatching this movie for the first time in a few years, was just how obviously this character of Jerry Cornelius influenced the creation of Buckaroo Banzai. Oh yeah, very much so. I, 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 that same thing occurred to me, that there's, there's kind of that Doc Savage collection. If you're going to compare him to anyone, you can go back to Doc Savage in that he's this yeah. um, ad, a scientist that you know, is engaged in adventures and so forth and his own motivations and so forth and so on, uh, which, of course, is Buckaroo Banzai. But that's, that's really what the movie plays a lot like Buckaroo Banzai, except that it, it's, almost, it's kind of interesting because you know, we were talking about the... the uh, the the 70s science fiction compared to the post-Star Wars, it's like Jerry Cornelius is kind of like the 70s version of what 
Buckaroo Banzai would be for the post-Star Wars world, you could almost say. Yeah. Because yeah. Buckaroo Banzai is very much more in, you know, science fiction movies that came after Star Wars, Buckaroo Banzai. Science fiction movies that came after 2001, Planet of the Apes, final program. <laughs> true, true. So, but also yeah, what I think, yeah, uh, that, yeah. that's one of the that's one of my, uh, my complaints about why I would love a longer version of this film. Because one of the things that's missing from the movie that is very much present in the novels is uh, Jerry Cornelius as guitar god, as uh, rock and roller. And, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and which is in the novels. Yeah, yeah, very, yeah, it's very much in the novels where he'll he'll go to places and he'll he'll get up on stage and play either by himself or with uh, other bands of people that he knows, and he'll just sit in and play. And you know, it'll be, it'll be blue, it'll be blues stuff, or it'll be rock and roll, or it'll be whatever. But it's one of those things where it's very easy to see. The, the people who created Buckaroo Banzai were like, okay, okay, so <laughs> you've got this character, and uh, he's, a, he's a rock and roll musician, and he's a physicist, and he's a Nobel, you know, he's a Nobel Prize winning uh, scientist, and he, you, know, you just keep going, and it's like tick, 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 and it's like, is he right. fighting someone named John Big Booty? I'm curious, because it seems like we're going down that trail <laughs> right now. Yeah, very much so, yeah. yeah. Well, all right, let's take a look at a, a plot synopsis here real quick. Necessarily, Mr. Cornelius, the soul may awaken to liberation, yet continue to animate the body it inhabits. The eternal cycle. The film's story opens in Lapland at the funeral pyre of Jerry Cornelius's father, a Nobel Prize winning scientist who has developed the final program, quote unquote, a design for perfect self-replicating human beings. Uh... That is, uh, that's that's front-loading shit tons of information that you don't get until later in the movie. Uh, I don't think that's a good idea to have this plot synopsis spelling that out. That's kind of silly. That's that's rather pointless, actually. Uh, well, Jerry Cornelius. Oh, and, and we should say that all that that whole sequence, the opening sequence under the credits, as we're watching them build this pyre and burn uh, the the body in its coffin. There, it's pretty impressive. It's a pretty impressive sequence. But it's not what they had planned. Yeah, I know. That's an interesting tale from the uh, um, the commentary is that they were it was, they were actually going to bury him, and the ground was so hard they couldn't get it, dig into it at all. <laughs> so, so they dismantled they, a nearby shack that had been built as as this was all filmed in Spain, and so it's a right. shack that had been built for a spaghetti western. So they just dismantled, took a bunch of the wood, and built this pyre right there on screen, and and then burned it. And uh, to be honest, I agree with the director. This works better for their intent oh, yeah. because it's such an amazing yeah. visual as the helicopter that Jerry's flying around in, you know, f- flies over the, the smoke and, uh, from the pyre and then off into the distance. It's great. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jerry Cornelius, playboy, physicist, and it says dashing secret agent. So remember my cursing from earlier. Just put it in place. <laughs> Uh, he yeah. is in attendance at the funeral. Afterwards, he is questioned by Dr. Smiles, who wants to retrieve a microfilm which he knows is in the Cornelius family home in England. In England. Cornelius, a conspicuous counterculture, counterculture dandy, 
with addictions to chocolate biscuits and alcohol. That would be uh, Bell's Whiskey, by the way. Uh, which is also another neat little detail straight from the novel. <laughs> I love that they retain his car, the uh, the wire clip with the, the booze bottle, and, it, it, you know, right there next to the steering column and everything. I just, I absolutely love right. that. There's so many things that are retained from the novel that really add perfectly to the character and tell you so much visually without ever having to to delve too deeply into uh, the, the, the characteristics that would bring someone to this point. Uh, but him driving around, drinking whiskey, and eating chocolate biscuits is is pretty hilarious. The the shots of the floorboard of the car with all the, the various bits of detritus there, including so many broken and, and dropped pieces of cookie, are just hilarious. Uh, well, Jerry, yeah. uh, Jerry uh, t- uh, is it, it arrange, arranges to help Doctor Smiles in this little consortium of people who are interested in getting this microfilm uh, from the house to help him because he has designs on his own. He wants to get back into the uh, the old family estate there uh, because uh, he he te- and he tells them he's, he wants to uh, he wants he wants to destroy the house because what his intent is is to uh, save his sister from the clutches of his brother Frank who are uh, holed up in the house there and apparently Frank is holding Catherine his sister against her will, and uh, Jerry makes it very clear that he uh, intends to uh, kill Frank, blow the house to hell, and get Catherine out of there. And he has started this whole thing in motion to get this done, and is more than willing to have the help that these people uh, these people are willing to give him to get this done. Now, let's talk about how this differs from the book. In the book, this assault on the house is not just led by Jerry and these uh, these four characters that he's along with, including the uh, formidable Mrs. Brunner, but uh, they have yes. they have an entire team of hired mercenaries because Frank has an entire team of hired mercenaries who are helping to guard this house as well. Right. This is one of those places where it, it was obvious they just didn't have the money to do this, so they had to scale it way back. Although, it would have been great to have seen it played out the way it does in the book. Yeah. Because it's a... It's a pretty major undertaking. I mean, it's it's like I said, it's up there with it, you'd have to have a, bo- a James Bond style budget to stage something like that. Yeah, there's a lot of gunplay in the novel. There's a lot that this whole assault takes a very long time because uh, the the house and they they do uh, do a pretty good job of presenting some of this in the film, but not as much as in the novel, of course, about how well defended and how many tricks and traps there are within the house to keep people out. And a lot of these tricks and traps are built and designed by Jerry's father in the first place. Uh, and they, they just they, they lightly touch upon the fact that uh, of, of that stuff with the, uh, the kind of bizarre hypnotic lights that are uh, right. that are there that he has to uh, that he has to uh, defend uh, them defend against before they can even approach the house. And then once they get into the house, there are a few uh, odd little things here and there that uh, really in the novel were, were much bigger affairs. Right. And, and I think this is a good point. I've got to talk about Miss Bruner or, um, yeah. or, or, or Stormbringer, as she actually is. <laughs> yes, yes. She is very which, obviously, very obviously Stormbringer, people, yes. Yeah, for, for people that are Elric fans, uh, uh, Miss Bru- the character Miss Bruner is actually the sword Stormbreaker from the El- Elric novels. But golly, man, Jenny. Uh, uh, Runacre. Uh, Runacre, thank you. 
she is so wonderful from the moment she first appears on the screen. And she just rules through every scene in this movie. And this was apparently only her second film that she'd shot. She had been in the uh, John Cassavetti's film Husbands before this. And uh, God, she's just so wonderful. Well, I mean, that she she's incredible in this. And she, very much like uh, John Finch, knew precisely how to present this character. She does such an excellent job in this. And I, I was shocked to learn that this was only her second film. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, clearly, she she she'd done a lot of she had done a lot of uh, stage work, and she was uh, part of the actors' workshop and things of that nature. So it's not as if she were she was uh, some kind of acting novice. But at the same time, she, uh, she she's in that wonderful commentary track on the Blu-ray and talk and talks about how uh, she was a little intimidated by, uh, you know, being uh, being with uh, John Finch because. By this time, Finch was known for having uh, had uh, the the incredible breakthrough screen role of Polanski's Macbeth, and uh, these the the pow- the powerhouse of actors who were in this movie as well. She you know she knew some of these people were uh, who who they were and what their and what their uh, abilities were. And the thing is, she went from this on to work with you know like Pasolini. And Antonioni, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, and you know, uh, Jack Nicholson. Uh, my lord, the, the you look at her list of credits, and you're just you're just kind of stunned by it. I mean, yeah, the, she's so good. She she's got the the screen presence. She's got the looks, but she most of all she's got the acting chops, and and she she one hundred percent sells that character from the first moment she's on the screen. Yep. So, yeah, so, I mean, if you've read the novel, and Miss Bruner's just such a great character in the novel, and, and I mean, that alone makes this film worth watching, is just her performance as Miss Bruner, so, yeah. She, well, the, uh, the, the, real, the real joy here is that they, they found an actress who was perfect for the role and got, got the character, and so you don't have this... You don't have this thing where you sometimes have a, an actor or an actress who's not fitting properly into the role. And as much as I would, I mean, let's be let's be clear here. John Finch is the perfect Jerry Cornelius. He is exactly, and, and I, I don't know if this is me just looking back after having seen the film, but when I saw the film version the first time, I do remember thinking, man, that's exactly how I imagined Jerry yeah, Cornelius. Yeah, I, I would agree. I would agree. The, uh, um, the other thing, too, I love, and this is a credit to Foyce, because there's so many elements of this that are never explained. And Miss Bruner's yeah. ability to absorb her lovers into her body they they never really spell that out that that's what's happening. They never explain why. Oh well, she was a you know she was exposed to nuclear radiation and mutated and developed this ability. <laughs> you know, it's like shut up. We don't need to hear any of that. Just, no. just you know, and and God bless Foist for having the courage to just go with that because I think a lot of directors would have whipped out and you see it all the time in movies where there's just something cool and weird and bizarre. And it's just part of the fabric of the story, and it's never explained. But yet, when it gets turned into a film, someone has to have what I always say the chart scene, where someone, you know, someone <laughs> pulls down the chart with the pointer and starts, it's, well, this explains how they're able to do this, blah, blah. Yes. And it's like, I don't want to hear any of that. Just just let me run with it. I'd rather, I'd rather not even know the details, you know. Well, because, the, the, only time, that makes the, it, the only time I necessarily want to hear that stuff is if it somehow adds to what we're watching right now and is well, right. necessary for me to figure something out later on. That's it. Yeah, yeah. If it's necessary for the story, 
then bring out the, the lecturer and the, and the char wall chart. But if it's not necessary story, if it's just a matter of like, well, people are going to wonder. It's like, screw the people. <laughs> if they're wondering, then they're idiots. Don't worry yeah, about yeah, them and yeah, move forward. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so yeah, love that. Love that. Because like I said, I think a lesser director would have been like, oh, we, we need to explain what's going on here. And it's less like, no. I mean, the, the closest they come to an explanation is, you know, is is he'll say like, oh, oh, like oh, I love the one, the one where um, it's near. It's actually near the end of the film. I forget who the character is, but uh, oh, it's Patrick McGee. It's Patrick McGee's character. After she absorbs Patrick McGee's character into her body, uh, Jerry says, you know, where is he? And he, she goes, oh, he's somewhere inside. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not even taking the time to gesture toward the house. Yeah, just. But, but like, it's not. It's not just that. Uh, earlier, uh, earlier in the film, she when she uh, when she's absorbed. Oh God, what is the character's name? Um, uh, darn it, darn it, darn yeah, it. Yeah, like the, our, the young woman who's pl who plays piano in that one, Jenny. Jenny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when she she uh, she says, uh, uh, "Oh, she's around." Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's just it's just one of the things where we're not gonna. And, and what uh, what I love is is also it's something straight out of the book. And here's here's where my memory played a trick on me because I reread the novel recently, the final program, before I rewatched the movie. And so as I'm reading the book, I I I, I could have sworn I remembered a scene from the movie that's actually not in the damn movie. Yeah. Okay, there's a went right after she has uh, because well because the the first character that uh sh that mrs brunner is running around in the first part of the story with uh is a uh, in this film it's kind of the the same character as dimitri but that it's not dimitri they, they play around with that character in this movie in a way that that is uh that changes things but the uh the character uh is is with her and kind of a constant companion at the beginning of the story and then disappears right and uh as a reader we kind of have a sense of something going on there and Jerry asks, "Well, where is he?" And calls him by name. And she and uh, she says, "Oh, he." I forget how she brushes him aside, but Jerry says, "Well, that's weird because when I first entered the room and I looked, I looked over at you. I thought you were him." Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I swear to you that I thought I remembered a scene in the movie where there's kind of this weird moment where he looks across the room and that person's face is kind of juxtaposed across hers. There's this kind of fade in, fade out thing. But I was imagining it. I'm just pulling that. I, I was reading that in the book and imagining it and thinking that it was in the film. Yeah. And, and I should point out here, too, that, that uh, Miss Bruner's ability to absorb of the human beings is another parallel to Elric because in, in the Elric stories, the, the the dark sword Stormbringer, whenever it kills a person, it actually devours their soul. It yeah. absorbs their essence into the blade. So again, that was uh, Moorcock playing with it in a different way. But yeah, more more fun. Now, what do you like more? The, the idea of Stormbringer being this woman who's deadly as hell, or my favorite, my favorite little conceit that the, they do something interesting with here in the film, which is the idea that there's this thing that's right at the beginning of the, of the novel, but they space it out in little flashback scenes throughout the movie, okay? Which are the flashbacks to Jerry's conversation with Professor Hira uh -huh. about the, the Kali Yuga 
uh, which kind of uh, is the the idea is to get across this kind of philosophical uh, philosophical understanding of the fact that the world is in its final days that we're ro- that we're rolling toward the end of a, of a kind of celestial cycle and we're about to uh, begin again. And their conversation, we get bits and pieces of it as the movie goes along. And like I think about three big chunks where they're talking about this and about how this is the end of a particular cycle that started around 3000 BC and uh, we're coming to the end of it and that's why there's so much turmoil there's all this stuff that's going on in the world uh, you know in very in various in various scenes in the movie we learn about you know the Vatican no longer existing because it's just been evaporated and Amsterdam has been uh, turned to ash. And, uh, and there's that wonderful scene in, in London whenever he's walking down the street and you see the yeah. junked cars piled up in front of the, the historic buildings, which to, uh-huh. me, that, that, to me, that scene right there just epitomizes the way that you're able to, they're able to build, generate this feel of an apocalyptic world on a very low budget. We don't have to like show London in ruins, we just show this little scene, like, like here's junk cars piled up in a massive mountain in front of a famous building in london you know and it's just like well oh this ain't the world we're in now you know (laughs) well i really love those i really love those bits and pieces those flashbacks to his conversation with yeah yeah sorry i got offline oh no no that's that that, believe me that's we're in a podcast it doesn't matter yeah (laughs) The, 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 (laughs) the point the point that i the point i wanted to make was i love those bits because it not only gets across very clearly the idea of Jerry's knowledge of the impending end of days. It also sets up this uh, kind of apocalyptic feel to the story without necessarily having to delve into a lot of detail uh, because the, uh, as, as much as uh, a lot of people in the in the late 60s when he wrote this novel, well, mid-60s, wrote it in 65, I think it got, it pu- it got yeah. published in 68, uh, there was a lot of that feeling at the time. you got to remember just how tumultuous the 1960s were. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, we're going through a pretty rough patch the past few years here as well, but this is the first time we've really had a period of time that felt to the, the great mass of the population of the world a lot like that period of time in the 60s where people were, you know, public figures were being assassinated. Uh, riots were kind of a, a standard standard thing you had to think about as, uh, as, as a person just getting around inside some of the larger metropolitan areas of the world. It, it, it honestly felt dangerous and dangerous on a societal scale. Uh, and, right, and, this, right. and this is this is what uh, this conversation that we keep returning to with Professor Hira emphasizes and kind of tees up some of the stuff that starts to come to pass as we as we move into the third act later on. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and, you know, that's this that's one thing about this whole time period is that um, people who were smart, who were looking ahead, there, there was kind of that. There was that, that swinging London, London era in the UK where yeah. um, kind of in the mid 60s where they kindly finally emerged from austerity and they were recovered because because, you know, Britain was a dark place during the 1950s. A lot of people don't realize that, that they, they still had rationing all the way up till the late 50s. Uh, there was not a lot going on there, you know, because because their economy had been so badly damaged. Yeah, it was by World War Two. I mean, they in a lot of ways they were just as bad off as as Germany or other places in Europe. You know, they they were a little better, obviously, because they'd won. But <laughs> it in some uh. ways you could argue it was a pyrrhic victory for the UK. Uh, World War Two was, 
And of course, the whole concept of the empire was gone now. You know, the, the Raj had ended in India and it, it was ending in all these other places. And, and, and the way that the UK was able to maintain their sphere of influence was by cutting deals with, with ruthless dictators that had taken over in a lot of these places. Yep. So it was not a, yeah, it was not. So there's that kind of period around right when Moorcock wrote this novel that there was this like, oh, well, London is hip now and everything's different and we're swinging. But someone who was smart enough, someone like Moorcock, could look past the glitz and say, man, there's a cancer right here in this country and around the world that is growing and we're just not seeing it right now. Most people aren't seeing it, but it's going to be here. And in some ways, I feel like Moorcock, especially writing the Jerry Cornelius novels, especially when you read the first three, you can like you can see almost it, it leading up to uh, 1976 and 77 when punk happened, uh, with the whole idea of anarchy and that and the feeling that the British society yes. was going to co- collapse completely. And Moorcock was sharp enough to see that coming several years before it, everyone else did. Oh, he, he, he could very easily see it. And I think there are a lot of yeah. writers at the time, fiction writers, who saw it at the time and right. were and were folding it into their their stories and the way and even the ways they were telling stories. The, tying it into the punk thing, I think uh, this film takes that element of it and does it upright because think about how brilliantly they costume Jerry Cornelius in this movie. He's well, this this synopsis describes him as dressing like a dandy, but quite honestly, he dresses like someone who would be right at home in the the in the in the early eighties of, yeah. of what people were actually wearing. I mean, you look at the rock stars because, they, like I say, unfortunately, the movie doesn't have that part of it. He looks like someone like I don't know Adam Ant dressing yeah. dressing well. The, the Kinks had kind of nurtured that image some. Exactly. That, that kind of Oscar that's a, Wild and that's a holdover from the 60s. That, 60s that, 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 yeah. that frilled shirt and those, uh, oh, what are those, uh, what are those, those coats called that he's wearing? The, the kind of, uh, that extend down past his hips. I can't remember. I, I, yeah, I, I'm not sure exactly myself. I'm not a fashion plate on that. But yeah, I, you know, the Kinks had kind of in, in, gone for that look in the 60s. But uh, yeah, what was going on in British pop culture at that time was glam rock. You know, you, you yeah. had Bowie and Mark Pohl and you had people like that, you know, where they were all sparkly and all, you know, over the top, which is wonderful in itself. And Jerry Cornelius, in a way, what, like you said, he was like more hearkening toward the new romantic thing that would happen in the post-punk era. Although there are elements of what uh, Bowie was doing, especially in the mid to late 70s, that feel a lot like he was pulling from, from the Moorcock. Uh, Jerry Cornelius stories the the kind of thin white Duke stuff and some of the uh, some of the stuff as you enter the the Aladdin sane period right uh, right kind really kind of feels as if he's aping some of the Jerry Cornelius stuff in a in a very interesting way I would I don't know that he ever got questioned about that but I would love Bowie was a voracious reader and of course he he all oh, yeah know, and it makes me think that. You know, at some point or another, there was uh, there was a copy of the final program at the very least on his bedside I, table. Oh, I, I completely believe that. I'm sure Bowie read New World's magazine. Oh, well, know, oh yeah, no doubt in my mind about that. So yeah. yeah, even if he wasn't reading the actual novels, he was reading you know the stories that were being published in New Worlds that added up to the novels later. But 
Yeah, where, where were you? <laughs> oh, well, well, okay, well, uh, back, in the, back in the UK, there's a group of scientists led by Dr. Smiles right. and the okay. formidable Mrs. Brunner. They, they try to persuade uh, Cornelius to locate this microfilm that they, that they need for, for whatever reasons. They don't, they don't tell him, you know, they don't, they're not imparting exactly what they need this microfilm for. They're just tell, they just tell him uh, that this is, uh, this is connected to some work that his father was doing before he passed away. Jerry learns from his family servant that his sister Catherine has been imprisoned by his uh, his brother Frank, uh, who uh, is a chemist. And Frank has a tendency to experiment with uh, chemicals and various drugs, and appears to be experimenting on uh, on his sister and on himself. Uh, which I think is is another fascinating aspect of this that uh, is is once again presented almost exactly the same way in the novel having to do with uh, Frank's degenerate nature coming out in his wild use of pharmacology as a as a way of uh, kind of just giving him a reason to exist, it seems. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Frank has Catherine held captive in their family home and has addicted her to drugs for some unspecified reason. I, in the novel, it's pretty clear that uh, he's doing this out of spite, if no other reason. I don't know if both brothers are in love with their sister or if Frank is doing it out of a desire to, to, uh, to harm Jerry. I'm not, it's, right. not, it's not really ever clear. Well, Jerry, whose relationship with Catherine is implied to be incestuous, and I would say, uh, yeah, it's really heavily yeah, implied. Yeah, very it's, much so. It's and, so and, I, really and I have to say, uh, the, the wonderful Sarah Douglas plays Catherine, and, and unfortunately she's only in the movie a very short time. But, but um, I'd forgotten course, she was in this at she, all. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course she would become a, a genre favorite later with Superman, Superman 2. Uh-huh. Uh, she's wonderful in uh, People That Time Forgot. As the uh, uh, as the British aviatrix and uh, uh-huh. yeah just yeah just great great part so it's fun seeing her uh, much younger you know there well it's it's always fun and she's she she's great because uh, honestly I'd never thought about it before but at that time she and John Finch look enough alike to have actually been brother and sister it's kind yeah, of amazing yeah that's true too so yeah yeah Jerry is in, instructs the his the the, the house servant John to smuggle Catherine to the lodge on the on the property's grounds, and he'll, quote-unquote, take care of Frank. Uh, so uh, he then goes and consults Major Wrongway Lindbergh, who's played, <laughs> by, who's played by the genius Sterling Hayden, one of my all-time favorite actors, uh, channel, channeling, uh, channeling General Jack D. Ripper, the character he yeah, played yeah. from Dr. Strangelove, in my opinion. I found it interesting in the, in, in the commentary track. Chris mentioned that, that this character was already written into the script, uh, and they and then they managed to get Sterling Holloway, uh, not Sterling Holloway, excuse me. <laughs> that would not be <laughs> the same. Hayden. Sterling Hayden. Totally different Sterling. Yeah, totally different Sterling. Uh, they, they managed to get Winnie the Pooh in the part. No, no, they managed <laughs> to get um, Sterling Hayden in the part because honestly if if i'd not heard that i would have thought they just they found out they could get sterling hayden and just wrote this part for him because it is so he's so great yeah. and i love sterling hayden i'm, a, I'm an enormous fan and uh, uh but yeah he's wonderful in, in just that one scene they apparently they obviously just had him one day yep. on the set and they just shot this scene for that and what's funny though is that is that even though that's not something that's from the original novel 
there are characters that are very similar to Starling Hayden's character that show up in the later Jerry Cornelius novels. So I, I find that kind of interesting. I don't necessarily think there was a... I don't think Morkite took the idea from the movie, uh, especially because when the movie was being shot, he was already writing the, the third novel, came out that same year, The English Assassin came out that same year. Yeah. But, but, um, but it's just a very much type of character that would appear in this story, the real over-the-top, you know, American general type. Yeah. So. <laughs> who's, who's a weapons dealer and is, yeah, man, yeah. has managed to get a, a phantom jet for Jerry and is extremely happy about this fact. Yeah, and then we have Jerry go. Uh, we have Jerry go to visit another friend of his, who's just referred to as Shades, uh, because he's trying. He, he wants to get napalm because he's decided that napalm is exactly how he'll do away with the old family home. This scene. This is the scene we were talking about earlier that takes place, and in a lot of ways, it's right out of the novel. It takes place within this big, uh, like in- indoor arcade area. Yeah, with pinball machines. And uh, skating, and it, it's like it's one of those uh, kind of all-purpose nuns, huh? <laughs> nuns. <laughs> nuns gambling, nuns gambling, yes. which I think is hilarious. But it, it, it's 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 this amazing. It's a, it's a really an amazing scene that, uh, like I say, it's it's the scene that would have had Hawkwind playing in the background, and uh, I can I, I have to say I can understand why uh, the director decided against Hawkwind because that would be a very different feel to the soundtrack that the film has, to the music that's used, because it I don't know that having Hawkwind's music necessarily would work because the tone that you're going for isn't really a Hawkwind kind of tone. Right. Um, it, it's don't get me wrong, no, you know, nothing against Hawkwind necessarily, although I've never I've never really delved into their their film their discography very deeply at all. I I know just very little. I do know. I do need to, to check out the songs that I know that they worked with uh, Moorcock on, just out of curiosity, if nothing else. I don't think that they would have really properly set the tone. Now, I can kind of understand the, the, the desire to have the music in this place be, you know, diegetic. It, it, it to be something that's different from, you know, both present as you have a band playing in this room and also different from the music in the rest of the movie. And they don't go that route. Uh, but I, I I think that it probably, and he never says this in that commentary track, but I have the feeling that our dear director here may have thought that, you know, breaking that that sound, uh, in, you know, breaking in with a different kind of music might have disturbed the tone enough that it would have been really hard to kind of get things back into the groove. I don't know. Yeah, it could be. Could be. Yeah, certainly. Okay, well, they, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the attack on the old house commences, and, and it's protected by a sound system that, it, that induces, well, a light and sound system that induces uh, pseudo-epilepsy. Jerry, and the, Jerry gets the others inside unharmed, and then they, uh, they kind of fight their way past a few traps, including, uh, let's see, poison gas. There's this bizarre uh, lethal chessboard that's hanging on the wall. Uh, and like I say, in the novel, there's a, it's a lot more intricate, and of course there are, there's a lot more death, considering there's actually not any death in this assault because they only they have so few characters that they yeah they really can't kill any of them off. Well, that one does die, but yeah. Well, and then there's the wait, wait, which which character dies? One of the scientists dies, doesn't he? Oh no! I thought they all showed up at the end, and I think that's one of the major changes. These these characters who are at the beginning of the book aren't at the end of the book 
But in the movie, they retain the characters because you're talking about a movie here where, you know, you kind of... I was thinking of the one who gets poisoned with the sword that pops out of the... Does he die? I think he dies, yeah. Huh. Okay, okay. You may be right. Yeah, yeah. But some great sets in this. And and again, really creative use of uh, of coming up with neat, weird stuff on on... Without spending that much money, with all the inflatable things and so forth in the, in those scenes. Yeah, yeah, and then we have uh, Jerry. Uh, Jerry finds uh, the servant John, who's been fatally wounded by Frank. Uh, John confesses before dying that Catherine has not been uh, broken out of the house. That Frank found them while they were trying to escape and returned her to her bedroom. Jerry then finds and confronts Frank, and they have a needle gun fight. These are these they, they, these these little needle guns. These uh, compressed gas guns that fire these these uh these little uh let's say about two inch long needles right uh, uh these are the the main weapons that uh in the book if memory serves they were designed and built by their father and they're the they're the weapons that these two brothers use in this fight against each other and i think they i was really it's one of those things where they did a really good job of visualizing the needle guns to make them as believable as it could be made believable because uh, the you know you you, you see you, you see uh, Jerry kind of assemble his before this confrontation, and it and it looks believable. You get the idea of this gun very easily. the The movie also does a good a good job of presenting how dangerous they are, and then the idea that uh, our uh, pharmacological experimenter Frank has managed to uh, add to the needle gun's deadliness or danger by implanting drugs within them and so he actually right. manages to shoot Jerry in the confusion sadly after after he's been shot Jerry accidentally shoots Catherine which kills her yep and Jerry's wounded and uh, they they get this piece of dialogue in there which is I'm so glad they got this in here it would have been it would have been confusing it's very clear in the in the in the uh, the novel that uh, he he'll be able to uh, he'll be Jerry will be able to get that needle out of himself, but only with a magnet. He'll be able to pull it out, and that's what Frank tells him. <laughs> that's when Frank starts laughing, and he realizes that he's been drugged by the damn thing as well. Well, Jerry's wounded, and Frank then falls into the hands of Ms. Bruner, and Ms. Uh, Bruner Ms. Bruner uh, is rather ruthless and slaps Frank around like he's a fucking rag doll. Man. Yeah, again, and and you can tell Jenny. Jenny Rodaker was just having a ball doing that scene, so... She abuses this bastard. I mean, (laughs) she forces him to finally open the vault so they can get to the the microfilm, but then Frank is really clever, and he knows this house better than they do, and he outsmarts her and escapes with the microfilm. Well, next we cut to uh, Jerry recuperating uh, from being poisoned by Frank's needle in uh, a hospital, uh, once he gets out, he meets with Ms. Brunner again. In other words, she drives up and, and explains that, uh, yes, even though you've called for a taxi, I intercepted that call and I'm here now to pick you up. Let's go. She introduces him to her new lover, Jenny, uh, this woman who uh, Jerry is obviously attracted to immediately. They, uh, they, they plot to uh, recapture Frank, and Jenny is induced to play a piano naked in Jerry's flat where she is... Then, of course, uh, consumed by Mrs. Brunner. That makes her the second one who, uh, the second person in the story who seems to have been. Uh, I, I love that the Ms. Brunner character tends to present these characters 
into you know into the narrative as uh, lovers or you know boyfriends or girlfriends, and then uh, when they disappear, she has a, a really sly way to explain why they're not around right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, we were talking about that earlier about how wonderful she downplays that. So, <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things where where it, it, it's so nice it's so nicely done that you're sitting there going, wait a minute, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Frank has set up a meeting to sell the microfilm to Doctor Baxter, who is the character played by Patrick McGee. Uh, Patrick McGee is an actor that you've seen in roughly a hundred hundred films, uh, Clockwork Orange, and you know God knows how many other movies. And, Jerry it, and, and, and of oh, course, is wonderful in the part as Patrick McGee always is. <laughs> yes. Uh, He's such a unique actor. He he always brings something a little a touch, kind of dangerous and odd to to the performance. That you know another actor would never be. There are choices he makes as an actor, even in this brief role, that I don't think any other actor would have even thought of. Yeah, yeah, I agree completely. Well, Jerry and Ms. Brunner uh, track them down. And I would like to say also that that place where they film uh, this uh, where it appears to be Doctor Baxter's house. The Patrick McGee character. What a beautiful place! This I is think, another Spanish location. Oh, yeah. okay. I, for some reason, I was thinking it was Turkey, but yeah, Spain does make more sense. So, well, uh, Jerry and Ms. Brunner track them down. Ms. Brunner starts uh, starts a long conversation with uh, with Doctor Baxter, and then uh, ends up consuming him as well. Uh, and of course, it seems obvious that one of the reasons that she does this is that when she absorbs someone. She absorbs their their knowledge and their memories, and so this is a quick, a very quick and easy way for her to get what she wants and know that it's true. Right. Yeah. Uh, kind of the perfect interrogation method. <laughs> exactly. Which, which which you know has to piss her off. That because the, the, when you think back on the story, the fact that Frank got away from her has to be has to be particularly galling because the only reason she didn't do that to him is because the other people were in the room. Right. Yeah. That, and, and that's not something that's obvious your first time through the story, but your second or third time you realize you know that has to add that has to add to her irritation is that she could have just saved a lot of trouble here by just absorbing this sorry bastard yeah book. after slapping him around first because yes. she wouldn't have wanted to miss out on that fun <laughs> <laughs> well we have this is where we have the uh, the running gunfight with uh, with Frank between Jerry and Frank and it this is an amazing set piece. Oh my god, what a brilliant use of this location and a brilliant use of having a damned helicopter to shoot some of this stuff. Uh, it's around these ruins and I have to say that shooting first of all it's a great place to shoot something like this and they and they really block it well. Everything is very effective. It's exciting, it's strange. It has a it has a very unique look for a, for a for a set piece of this type and by shooting it in these ruins, it actually does add a considerable amount to the feeling that we're proceeding through a really kind of apocalyptic end-of-the-world type scenario. And that's weird considering these are ancient ruins, but it still kind of does, con- it contributes to that feeling. Yeah, very much so. Well, uh, Jerry manages to uh, kill Frank, and then Ms. Brunner and Jerry return to uh, Lapland by hot air balloon with the recovered microfilm. Now, this is when we need to th- talk a little bit about the differences between uh, the novel and the and the film. And some of them I don't, I, I don't, I really don't have a problem with because you've really got to condense a novel down when you're talking about a film. Yeah, absolutely. But in the novel, they 
make this venture up to Lapland. They're they're following they're following a, a trail. I forget exactly what the, the clues are and how they they come by the clues exactly, but it's a it's a this this place. They get up there. They find this cave system with this uh, big elaborate. Uh, uh, installation that was a, that was built by the Nazis during World War II. Right, right. And it's clear it's it, it's got you know it's even it was it was set up to be a defensible position. It's got uh, all these buildings, and it's clear that this was a natural cave formation that they then enlarged and built all these these places in. And uh, once we're there, and that place is established in the novel, we cut to Jerry leaving. Flying back to London, and getting back to his house in London, or his flat is 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 uh, I don't know is, is a rather large house there in uh, London, and uh, setting about getting ready for a very large party, which he then continues to have for the next several months. This is a very long party that, as things continue, as you realize that he's uh, he's. He's spending money and he's keeping this place, you know, supplied. He's, there's this constant flow of people in and out. It's this huge, never-ending party with a constant stream of people, and you realize that oh, well, this is just—he's just going on and on with this. And then Miss yeah, Border shows which up. Which to me, that, I mean, what that is is he's dealing with his grief over Catherine's death. Is what, right. Yeah, he's but it turns out to be from it, that basically. Yeah. Uh-huh. But it also turns out to be a little bit more than that. Once Miss Bruner shows up to tell him that the uh, the project that they that we haven't even thought about for several pages at this point is completed, and she she she's coming to get him to bring him back up there. Right. Right. And and he's he's disappointed not because of that, but because that the deterioration, this kind of party to end all parties that he's having. He's disappointed because he thought that uh, that it would take at least a couple more years for the the world to reach the level of deterioration that it's gotten to in just six or seven months, and um, it's it's clear that he's been doing this with the idea that this will be like the last big blowout before the this you know this this form of the world before the world ends really. Yeah, it's his his party like it's nineteen ninety nine basically. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, talking about that install the Lapland installation, if I can I can jump ahead there. That's that's another area where I I really wish the movie could have had a much bigger budget because in the book, I mean the the Lapland is it's like it's kinda of like the the insulation and you only live twice inside yes. the volcano. I mean there's troops there. It's just it's ridiculously huge. And of course, the movie—it's very just like, yeah. There's a few guys set up in the back room, you know, <laughs> you know, you know. So again, it's, it's it's very it's very much what should have been a uh, you only live twice kind of scale on a Doctor No budget. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Which, that's a good way to put it, actually. Yeah. So yeah. that that just came to me. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I wish I'd thought of that sooner. I could have been even more clever with it. Well, the uh, so uh, in the film though we don't get the we don't get that period where Jerry goes back to uh, London and throws this gigantic party. What we get is we're introduced to the place and the the scientists uh, put the final program into uh, operation, which is the thing that Ms. Brunner has been talking to the scientists about throughout the film. Uh, they've not discussed it with Jerry in the movie at all, and so this fi- in this final section of the movie is when they introduce Jerry to this entire. Con- this entire concept and uh, show him what the process and explain what the process is. Right, right. And the idea is that they're going to combine, they're going to create a new being, a, a being that 
will be like a messiah that ushers, that can survive in this new age and save humanity. And it's going to happen through a combination of, of Miss Bruner and the mysterious Dimitri who suddenly reappears. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like I say, in the novel, whoever that character was at the beginning of the novel is the first one that we're aware of of her, of Stormbringer absorbing, or yeah. Ms. Brunner, sorry. Yeah. Uh, and uh, to have him turn up at the end, I was, I was surprised because I didn't remember that. But it does it does explain some of the dialogue with that some of the scientists have with Dimitri at the beginning of the film where they explain why he's not going to go and be involved in the assault on the Cornelius compound because he's too important. And this is the reason is because they've been working all of their plans with Dimitri as the person who would merge with Mrs. Bruner to create this uh, hermaphrodi- hermaphroditic being, this, uh, this right. male and female self-replicating human. And and but Miss Bruner has other plans. Which, yes, she does. Which leads to I what I, I got to say one of my favorite movie fights ever. I just absolutely love the fight between Jerry and Dimitri uh, <laughs> because it kind of just it, it's it's like the anti movie fight. It, it it goes against every cliche you've always heard. You know, you expect uh, Jerry to be this master you know, combat, master of combat, and he's not. He's just like... No. Yeah, not. it's just... Yeah, it's it's so wonderfully played. It's hilarious. But again, it's not campy. It's just kind of like, yeah, that's about how a fight would go if somebody who didn't ever fight before got involved in it. And, I and love, the, fact that, the fact that he's like, he's like about to be killed before Miss Brunner intervenes. And I love that whenever, my favorite line of that is whenever he screams at Dimitri, fuck off, you Greek maniac! Yes. <laughs> 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 Just... <laughs> and if the movie hadn't earned such a beautiful line like that, when, the, when that scene, if it hadn't earned it, if the tone wasn't already perfect, it would have been just such a weird line. And it's still weird, don't get me wrong, but yeah. it's also perfect in the moment because you're starting to see how how this is not something he's built for. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, we so, all like to, you know, as, as science fiction and adventure fans, all that, we only like to imagine, yeah, if I got in a fight, I'd do great. But if we, if like you or I got in a fight like that, that's pretty much how it ended up. <laughs> yeah, we, we might get in a few lucky shots and maybe Which if we could Jerry somehow does. close the door, yeah. we could run. Yeah, Jerry does get in a few good shots. He's not inco- he's not completely incompetent. He's just overmatched. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I just love that whole fight scene. It's just wonderful. Uh huh. Well, the the scientists who've been uh, working against time scramble to recalibrate their experiment because Jer- Jerry is is now the person who's going to be placed inside the chamber with Ms. Brunner. Uh, and as the process reaches its climax, and in this case, it does appear to be a sexual merging of the two characters before it all goes down the 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 two of them are bathed in uh, solar radiation and blur into each other and once the uh this 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 process once this process is over whatever whatever went down outside has killed the scientists there there's blood all over the floor and they're all dead laying there the process cracks open the the process cracks the uh, the chamber open and we get uh, a single being emerging out of the chamber who uh I love this this whole POV section where it comes out and and surveys the the uh, the laboratory and the dead scientists and everything. Its vision slowly coming into focus. It's a great visual because it it really does give a sense of 
almost a newborn creature trying to process all this visual and audio information. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I really like that. But we're up to the point where I'm going to have to, where I'm, the movie really disappoints me. But we'll, we'll, oh, yeah, okay, okay. okay. We're almost up to it. And that's whenever you see the creature is, is that because it is so different from the way the novel is. Of course, in the novel, what emerges from the, is this almost angelic, um, yes, uh, hermaphroditic creature. Um, everyone who sees it is just like enthralled. Just, you know, it's like they've seen the face of God whenever they see this creature. And then what follows is the creature leaves uh, the combined Miss Bruner and Jerry and basically starts moving through U- UK and then into Europe and everywhere yeah, it goes. Let's, let's, let's people, talk about this first. Let's people just become like mindless slaves of this creature and, and you get the idea that, well, you've not really saved the world, you've destroyed it. <laughs> it's what you've done because it's just like it's the end of humanity, you know, that everyone is like enslaved to the will of this that, thing. That, yeah, yeah, that's what happens in the book yeah. and I find it fascinating and, and of course, we'll, we'll let's say the obvious. There was no way to film that. Suit. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 at the same time, the the this angelic creature that comes out of there that's this combination of Brunner and Cornelius. There's this moment that I'm not even sure that when he wrote the novel, I don't I don't know that Moorcock was necessarily aware that he could have pulled pulled this trigger. But I wonder if the idea might have been because I don't think it's stated on the page. That there, it's these people's creation of this creature that actually does make this age end. That's that's the way I kind of that's the way I read the novel. Is that well, yeah. this was the final step. You know, this this is what you you've done. You know, oh my God, what have I done? You know, well, you blew it up, you bastards. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and and I think it would have been possible to have done that ending. Obviously not you know, thousands of people rampaging through cities, destroying everything. Well, no, it'd be, it would but, be, as described, but, it would be millions. But you would have, you would have been, you could have certainly had it be like this angelic creature and implied what was going to happen at the ending. And, and I feel like because they went in the total opposite direction where he's like this, you know, primitive caveman type ugly thing you know, yeah, this kind of hunched. Over yeah, to me, it just of, comes yeah. off as a joke. You know, like oh, they thought they were going to create God, and instead they created this monster. You know, and to me, it's it's kind of heavy-handed. It, it it's well, see, it, I don't necessarily agree yeah. with it being heavy-handed because this is what this is where I think that they hit a, they hit the right tone in an odd way. Convince me. <laughs> what I mean by that is that yes, they decide to go with a visual that is very much a. A kind of caveman, a, 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 a kind of pre-modern hominid, but the the creature is very obviously Jerry, and having him turn and say what he says, and then have that wonderful line at the end as he as he starts walking off into the distance, about it being a very tasty world. It seems to me that that is that's as close as they can get to the ending of the novel because they just couldn't film the ending of the novel. And, and, and I think that they're kind. They're kind of. They're kind of having. The, they're they're having to find a way. Right. Which that line First is all, from. I, don't, the I think that if they had it be this angelic character, there would have been a lot of people that went, "Oh, you're just ripping off the end of 2001." Well, I, I, I can see an argument there. Yeah, that's true. But 
I don't know, it just leaves me strangely unsatisfied. Although, the line is a great line, and the line is from the novel. Yes. Because in the novel, that's what the what's, what the character says. Exactly. It is, it's a, a very tasty And one. that is the perfect you know, basically, line. And basically, what you've allowed, I mean, in a way, it's, it's you know, it's it's Miss Bruner saying, I'm I'm more evil than you ever were. Ha 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 ha. You know, which is the end of... of Elric, what Stormbringer says when it transforms, reveals itself to be a demon and basically says that kills Elric and then flies off, you know, to spread its, destroy everything, you know, so, uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I, for me, it just doesn't work. I feel like it was like they, they took a misstep there. Um, but I, I, I can see your point, especially the thing about that they, they might be accused of being, trying to rip off 2001. Because, but, but the difference would be is that with 2001, there's kind of that feeling like, is this good? Is this bad? Yes. Maybe it's good. You know, with this, I think there had been a way that you could have played it where it's like, oh, this is definitely bad. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Yeah. Here's yeah. how I think, and, and if you'll stay with me, I think you'll understand where I'm going with this. Yeah. What they yeah. could have done is... is visualize this creature as more angelic, possibly even glowing, something that could have been pulled off in the time period we're talking about. And when it comes out of the chamber, the scientists are still alive. And so you have this absolutely angelic, beautiful thing that they're standing there staring at, and then with a gesture, it kills them. And then starts to leave the cave and there's a slight difference in the way it looks after it kills those scientists, and then it turns and gives that line. Yeah, that I yeah, think I, would have been a, a a better way to encompass the attitude and the tone of the end of the novel. Uh, like I say, I, I don't hate the end of this film, but there's some there there there's a different way I would have approached it myself. I can understand why he approached it the way he did. And I'll say it works, but it's it's not exactly what I wish it was by far. I I I I wouldn't say I hate the ending of the film. I would say that it's a letdown for me because I think it could have been done yeah, a lot better. Yeah. And what you just described is one way it could have been done better. Because because I think I the idea of this angelic character then immediately its first action out of the womb, quote unquote, is to murder these people who created it. Mm-hmm. I think that is a symbolic way that or. I, is it would have been as I'm creating this out of whole cloth. This is all mine. I'm just this would have been a yeah. this would have been a way to visually get across this melding of uh, Jerry and Ms. Brunner and what it's capable of, and kind of getting the idea that this is a completely different creature. This this does not have the morality or even the thoughts of morality that kind of you would expect from quote unquote two human beings merging together. Right. Right. Yeah. The uh, yeah, I, I I I agree. I agree. Yeah, and basically the idea that basically what they've done is they've given Miss Bruner the means to absorb everyone right. is what they to devour everything is what they've done is what they've done for her. So is what they ultimately accomplish here. And I agree. I think that, I think the implication in Moorcock's novel is that um, you know the the actions you took to prevent the end are actually what is the end? You know? Yeah, they're what so, they're what's created the end yeah. in the first place, which is a theme that's been used a lot of time in science fiction novel. You know, we go back oh, in yeah. time to to find out how the world was destroyed, and it's like, oh, it's because we went back in time. That's how it was destroyed. <laughs> yeah, you know. So, well, uh, I I I love there's this uh, there's this wonderful uh, interview 
from an old issue of Shock Cinema with John Finch. Of course, everybody, uh, John Finch passed away, uh, I think, about eight years ago now. Mm. So, unfortunately, uh, there are no new interviews with John Finch. Uh, he talks about, uh, they, they ask him about uh, the final program, and he says, uh, the distributors simply didn't know what to do with this film. They didn't understand it. And I'll just editorialize and say, yeah, no shit. Uh, Mr. Finch says, I knew Michael Moorcock, one of the all-time great science fiction writers. I met him at a party just down the road in the early 60s, and he told me about the Jerry Cornelius novels. Bob Fust and I got together. We were going to make three of these Cornelius films, but we only did the one because it was such a flop. Too bad. It's a lovely film, but it was cut to rat shit for its American release. <laughs> it says, Yeah, just like we were saying earlier, 18 minutes. I, I, I can't even visualize this movie with 18 minutes of it gone. I know. Just, it had to have just been a, a confusing mess. Uh, I want to say something about the, the subsequent Jerry Cornelius books. You know, as we said at the beginning, they, they get more and more abstract, more and more surreal, and more and more experimental in their yes. prose styles. But I, I think the basic core of what they're about, and, and I'm going to... It was interesting. When I was rereading these books... I forget at what point it may have been during the cure for cancer. It may have been in the English assassin that it hit me like, well, you know, somebody has kind of made one, uh, a Jerry Cornelius movie in the 1970s that kind of fits, tells a similar story to what's going on, especially in the later Jerry Cornelius. Cause in a way, what the later books become is that Cornelius realizes it starts to realize that it, there's kind of an overarching plot. It's never really spelled out in detail, but that basically as the books go through all these alternative worlds and alternative timelines is that it's Jerry trying to basically figure out, find a, find a world where his sister can live yeah, and they can be together. And ultimately he, he realizes that no, the part I'm supposed to play is that we will never be together. I can, the best I can do is have a world where she's still alive, but we won't be together. You know, and, uh, and and as I said, that's you almost have to kind of pick that up as a feeling over the course of where you're reading it, because Moorcock never spells that out plainly. But I, I do think that's probably a, what was on his mind, or at least that's what I think it says. Maybe he was actually saying something else, and I'm just reading what I I do into it. But that's what you're supposed to do with great literature. Um, and, I, and I would, po- anyway, I would posit anyway, that the Jerry Cornelius novels fit that description too. So yeah, same here. The but but yeah. So basically, um, I, I mean, over the course of it, Jerry comes to realize that he is kind of this actor in a play that he doesn't have control over. You know, the the character in the play does, is not the playwright. He doesn't have control over this. So there's kind of this metafiction thing going on. Yeah. And a movie movie that I really love from the 1970s that to me is just like like the unknown Jerry Cornelius movie is Oh Lucky Man. Oh, um, that's not a yeah, yeah. You're right. Because that's basically what happens in that film is that Malcolm McDowell's character he goes through all these bizarre adventures and ends up in different altered realities to a certain extent. And finally, kind of the the ending of the film, he comes to realize that, oh, I'm just a character playing a part in a movie. That's why my life doesn't make sense. It's because <laughs> I don't have any control over it. It's being written by another hand. You yeah, know? They're, they're at the end. He's, uh, he's part of it. Yeah. He's in a room with the, the director of the film and talking about casting. Yeah. 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 And there's kind of and he kind of has that moment of realization where he realizes, oh, suddenly my life makes sense. 
the reason my life has made no sense at all is because I'm a character in a in a, in a film. <laughs> yeah, so, I'm not a anyway, coffee. I'm not a Lindsay, coffee salesman. Lindsay Anderson directed that film, and I and I really love a lucky man. I just that that's, oh, that's a great movie. Yeah, yeah, it's a great film. And, and to me, it's kind of like well, that's kind of the unknown Jerry Cornelius film because it touches on a lot of the same themes that the Moorcock would explore in the later Cornelius novels. And I, anyway, that's my big theory. I wanted to stick into this. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. I like it. Yeah. Now, here's a, here's a question for you. Uh, but I would love to have seen some of the other Jerry Cornelius movies. Oh, film. yeah. They would have been... They would have been difficult, but David Cronenberg made a novel, made a movie out of Naked Lunch. So there you go. Exactly. So, so, it, so it could be done. It could... It could be done. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Here's what I would love to see. I, 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 we, we now live in amazing times. And by that, I mean that there are now things being adapted to the visual arts, uh, not necessarily in film, but on television in incredible, yeah. inventive ways. And it, appear, it, it appears clear that something like this would be almost perfect for... Uh, some crazy son of a bitch to be able to convince someone at Netflix or, or you know, one of these other streaming platforms to film at least the first novel as a five or six or seven or eight episode series, and then if we got really lucky, maybe we'd even get a second one. <laughs> but it becomes yeah, it becomes the yeah. question of. Uh, anybody thinking that this would be viable? But here's the beautiful thing about it is that. In the in the in the film, the film world. If you're making a feature film, you still have those same barriers that you would have had back in the early '70s, which would be, you know, is this going to turn a profit? Can this actor bring in a crowd? Can you know, da, 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 all these things on television, right, on television right. and on streaming platforms, it's very different. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I, I man, I would love to see Noah Hawley turn loose on the cure for cancer. Tell me about it. That would be. <laughs> I mean, the, that would be like a dream come true because the man who made Legion, the man who made three um, brilliant seasons of Legion do something like this because yeah, I tell yeah. you right now Legion could almost be the the like prelude tonally to yeah. the final program. Right. Exactly. I agree. Yeah. So um, yeah, that would be yeah that would be a lot of fun. Oh, it would it would be a blast. Well, now that you've gone through, like I say, I've only reread the first two. Uh, now that you've gone through the initial uh, Cornelius Quartet, oh, but before I get to that, I should say, oh, by the way, obviously, Jerry Cornelius, J.C., Jesus Christ, Messiah, the whole nine yards. It's like some of this is so obvious, I don't know if it needs to be spelled out or not. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, another thing I, I like in the movie is that there were several points where I was misreading a visual thing because there, uh, it's very evident, especially in uh, high definition, that there's some uh, makeup on uh, John Finch's face making him a little paler than he normally would be. And it turns out that some of that is because uh, he and uh, Jenny Runacre got uh, suntanned while they were filming in Spain. And so they had to, oh, they had to, yeah. they, they had to, uh, to pale them down so that they actually, their skin tone matched the, the stuff that had been shot earlier. But when I was watching the film and re well, when I was rewatching the film this time, what I initially thought was a ha ha ha. They're well aware that Jerry Cornelius is essentially just Elric in modern dress. So they're trying to give him the look of a slightly albino man. <laughs> and it's like, no, I was wrong. He just got suntan he yeah. just got suntan and they needed to fix it. So But it, 
you can you can like to think that it oh, was. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, but it, 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 to, to me, it was one of those neat little things where it's like, ah, we're never going to even hear the word Elric. Nothing's even going to be brought up about it. But there's that little visual thing that tells me, and then of course it turns out, no, no, not really. I'm reading something into it that's not there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, overall, I, I, as I said, I think the final program has been unjustly maligned over the years. I do, th- I, I do think that there's. You know, especially the ending. I have a few problems with that. But overall, I think it's a wonderful film. And if people just go with it, it's it's really entertaining. Yeah. It is such a it's 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 such a weirdly breezy, interesting, fascinating thing. It was it's it's one of those movies that once you start, it's it's it, once you start, it's hard to find a place where you want to pause it to to, to go get something to drink or something. It just keeps you. I don't know. There's so much, so much that's required of you. It's almost like watching a mystery. You're so curious about how they're going to, what are they doing? How are they going to visualize this? What is going on with this character? How are they doing that? You know, this, that, or the, there's so many things. It's just, it, and it, you know, it just, it's 90 minutes of just, or even a little under 90 minutes of just absolute fascination. Uh, it's, it's, I, 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 I don't know if we can say that it's necessary. I mean, yeah, there, granted, there's a Blu-ray of it, so it's not as if uh, this is some kind of, uh, you know, buried movie that you're going to have to, re- you know, really try to find a copy of. I mean, it's it's it was released on DVD, and now it's on a freaking Blu-ray. And the thing is, it's still one of those movies. It's still very much a cult movie that almost no one seems to talk about in general. It's one of those kind of, as we said at the beginning, kind of underappreciated, under-talked about types of science fiction films from this really interesting, sort of fertile period of the 70s where science fiction had st- had not yet turned into the uh, uh, action extravaganza that they're now expected to be. Yeah, the blockbuster thing hadn't hit yet. And you could do these kind of offbeat, brainy, Things. I mean, pe- it, it was a time period where people actually expected science fiction to be intellectual. Well, to be about ideas. Yeah, yeah, to be about ideas rather than just shoot 'em ups, um, which is kind of what came to rule the box office after um, um, Star Wars. <laughs> which, I mean, obviously, movies didn't necessarily have to be that because you you have things like Blade Runner that came after that. But there's the pressure from the studio, like, why aren't there more shoot 'em ups in this? Yeah. we yeah. want more more of that. We want more of that. You know, yeah, what's with all this? So, what's with all this brooding? And what's the? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, great, great film. And I'm hoping that uh, now that we're back on the horse with this, I'd love for us to get back to doing this on a regular basis. I've got a, a long list of uh, 70 science fiction <laughs> films we want to talk about. I know we we still need to talk tackle Zardoz, which is another another realm of of bizarreness. Well, that and uh, <laughs> Phase Four and. Uh, Man, there's there's some really good ones out there. We still yeah, haven't done absolutely. it. That's true. You do. Yeah. You have heard. There's you... some obscure. There's some obscurities that I've never seen that I would love to check out. Uh, I I've never. There's a film. It's kind of like the final program. Not, not many people know about it. There's a film with Yul Brynner called The Ultimate Warrior. Oh yeah. yeah I've never. Yeah, I've never seen. But I. Oh, I, I, I've I seen it. I've seen it. Dig into that. So. It's uh. It's it's kind of uh. It kind of fits into the uh, post-apocalyptic. Well, no, it it fully fits into the post-apocalyptic thing. Max von Sydow's in it as well. It's uh. If memory serves, it's a pretty good movie. Yeah. And then, of course, Damnation Alley is a big one on my list because it's kind of like the last of the films that we're talking about. It was in production basically at the same time as Star Wars. 
and I believe it came out afterwards, but it it's more of the pre-Star Wars era. So, yeah, yeah, and that's know, one that yeah. I that Damnation Alley is one that I've always felt was just, was a bit of a mess. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially given, but, especially if you read the if you read if you read what it's adapted from, it's just like wow, why didn't they just do this? Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. Well, yeah, this has been great. Well, um, any, any last thoughts you have on the final program? Uh, no. Uh, uh, let's just say that only in the seventies could this novel, that's very much of that time period, have been adapted in such a way where it wasn't completely fucked up. Yeah, I would agree. And I, I think agree. that now, only now, in the twenty-first century, have has, has enough time passed where I would feel confident in certain creators actually taking a stab at this again. I, you know, as I said... Um, I mean, come on, think, well, think about it, think about it. Would you have expected anybody making films in the 80s or 90s during that era of filmmaking to have even gotten close to be making a good movie out of this? Uh, oh, no, not at all. And, and that's the th- that, But that's the funny thing, is that when I was reading these books, they are they're very much books of their time. Yes. You know, they very much reflect the time period in which Moorcock wrote them. But the bizarre thing is, and and I read the Jerry Cornelius novels back probably in the early 90s. And I, you know, I, I hadn't quite, at that point I hadn't read William S. Burroughs. I hadn't really gotten into a lot of the, you know, more avant-garde fiction that I would get into later. So they kind of took me a little off guard, and I thought they were interesting, but, you know, it was just like they didn't really enthrall me. Reading them now, it's just like, oh my God, are these, this book is about 1965, and it's also about 19, or 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's almost like we've we've come back to that circle where all these books make sense, and they seem, you know, I, I mentioned that at the beginning, is that they're so timely now. And they're they're timely now in a way that I don't think they were in the '90s or in the '80s or so forth. Yeah, yeah, um, I agree. Yeah, they're so. I mean, we live in a world where reality is determined by which YouTube video you watch. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know that. Yeah. Hur- hurricanes can change paths with the mark of a sharpie. You know, and then all of a sudden people are saying, you know, people are denying existence or creating their own realities. And it's just like, yeah, all this makes sense now. You know, it made sense in 1971 and now it all makes sense again. Agreed. You know, so, Agreed. Yeah. So so maybe we're heading toward the end times once again. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's on the horizon. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. Randy, I cannot thank you enough for uh, for suggesting that we cover this film. This is It's been great to revisit this, and it's been great to, to revisit uh, Michael Moorcock's science fiction. I've I've been delving uh, the past year back into the uh, the Elric novels and rereading those and pairing them with the Jerry Cornelius stuff. It's 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 a real joy. It's, it's something I recommend to anyone curious about uh, Moorcock's work. Yeah, definitely. I know that was one thing when I was rereading the Jerry Cornelius. Is I need to go back and reread all these Elric novels again because it's oh, yeah. been a long time since I've read those. So they, yeah, they I got to tell you, um, rereading them in my forties and fifties, I got to tell you, the Elric novels, they're deeper and much more interesting than I. I mean, I loved them as a teenager and someone in my early twenties, but uh, as you get older, there are depths to those things that just weren't evident at that age. Right. Oh, I'm sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, Randy, once again, uh, thank you very much. Do you want to yeah. tell people how they can uh, find your work out on the interwebs? Uh, yes. Uh, well, um, I 
I am the program director and um, uh, president of WXNA, which is Nashville's listener-supported freeform alternative station. You can find my show through the website, wxnafm.org. Um, I'm on Mondays mornings with a show called Randy's Record Shop, which is kind of a, I play a lot of punk, glam, rock and roll. And then I also am on Saturday nights now uh, with a show called The Hipbilly Jamboree, which is, which is more traditional uh, country music, rockabilly, hillbilly, western swing. Um, I also uh, had a book published uh, a couple of years ago called um, "That's a History of Excello Records," which was an R&B uh, soul gospel label that was based right here in Nashville, Tennessee, during the '50s and '60s. It's called "Shake Your Hips: The Excello Record Story." You can find the Facebook page for that out there on on the Facebook and. Um, and then I'll be hanging out with Rod. And hopefully, <laughs> we're, we're doing this through Skype, but I just got my second vaccine shot. I know you're gonna you're scheduled for your yeah. second one, so maybe the next one we'll do, we'll be back in the same room together again. I hope so. That would be fun. So. I, I, I like seeing which, which cat will actually approach me. <laughs> yeah, well, I can tell you pretty much which one will and which one won't. <laughs> yeah. thanks, again, thanks again, Randy. Oh, thank you, Rod. Always a pleasure. Bye. Bye. Well, howdy, partner. How can I help you today? I'm looking for a movie to watch, but I'm... What in tarnation was that? Never you mind, son. Now let's focus on your needs here. I'm looking for something to watch, but I want something I ain't seen yet. Ooh, watch yourself there, partner. Well, I reckon you come to the right place. You've come to the place where the East meets the West. The East meets the West? Where is that and how's that going to help me? Ooh, that was close. You better duck. I don't understand what's going on here. It's like I'm in a place where Kung Fu and Cowboys have combined somehow. Well, that's right, partner. You're going to find some offbeat films here, no doubt about that. Host Rigor is going to take you on a journey to discover not only the hundreds of amazing martial arts films of Hong Kong's Shaw Brothers, but also Italy's Spaghetti Westerns. Spaghetti Westerns? Is that some kind of joke? No, sir. Western movies made in Italy from the 60s to the 80s are called Spaghetti Westerns, and that's a fact. You can find The East Meets the West on all the major podcasting apps, as well as havenpodcast.com. Well, thank you kindly, sir. You done settled my entertainment needs, even though it's a tad dangerous in your store. Like I said, go to your podcasting apps or go to havenpodcast.com. The East Meets the West. Your new favorite ranch to hang out at. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was fun to get back to Randy and our uh, 1970s science fiction project. Uh, of course, 
there's a long list of films from the 1970s that would fit into this category very easily. Uh, a lot of very interesting ones, some very odd ones, some that uh, are pretty bad. <laughs> some that I've ruled out because either they've been covered too often or I don't want to speak ill of the dead and buried. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of interesting movies we'll be doing down the road for this as long as I can keep Randy on track. He's obviously a very busy man with a lot of, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of things on his plate. But uh, he, seems, he seems committed to, uh, to being committed, I guess would be the best way to put it. Especially if we're going to cover things like uh, Zardoz and uh, Slaughterhouse-Five and other films of that type. So, thank you very much. Remember, if you've got any comments or suggestions or ideas you want to throw at us, the podcast can be reached at thebloodypit at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, stick around, people. we got more podcasts on the way, more odd and interesting films to talk about. And uh, we'll talk to you again next time. Thank you.
Rock you, to rock.